Hello, this is Jamie Livingston and Hanako Gallagher, and we are Undecided, Undecided California. California. How are you? <laughs> good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, what's new since last week? Uh, everything. Everything is new. Mm-hmm. My, uh, jobs are all starting to collide. I have too many responsibilities. Responsible for too many things. Yeah, and I'm not paid for any of them. So come join our Patreon and pay me to do this. <laughs> yes. Give us money. Please. We'll talk to you more about it at the end. But yeah, I've been pretty good. How was Hawaii? It's pretty chill. I went on vacation with my mom. Aww. Mommy daughter time. Mm-hmm. What? Swimming. A lot of swimming. Turtle watching. I like turtles. Mm-hmm. I like turtles. <laughs> Here we are, back making content for you. On the grind, every day, all day. Pretty much. You know how we do. Except when we're on the floor <laughs> drinking wine. That's a good day. <laughs> that was me last night. Being responsible is hard. So what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about Prop 8 and Prop 11. So, Prop 8, what's all that all about? Yeah, I researched Prop 8, and it has to do with dialysis clinics and the exorbitant profits that they make. Cool. And combating that. And I did Prop 11, which also has to do with the medical field, but it focuses more on emergency situations. So, it talks about... EMTs and paramedics and their break times and being on call during their break times. So it focuses on that. So how this is going to work is that we are going to talk about the propositions and then we both conducted interviews. I interviewed an EMT worker about the proposition who is the president of the Steelworkers Union his like local chapter, not the whole union. He's like the president of the local chapter of the Steel's Workers Union, which has a health services branch. Yeah. It's a little confusing. Yeah. To see the connection between steel workers mm-hmm. and EMTs, but but it's there. And his name is Lee, and we're gonna be talking to him. And then we're gonna give our analysis. And Hanago talked to a dialysis worker, Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. He was awesome. Yeah, Both our guests were awesome. But. Very informed. Yes. Both our guests were awesome. And then we're going to give our opinions about how we would vote in terms of this proposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And any leftover questions we have, because it's a little confusing. A little confusing. So it's going to be a bit of a long episode today, but it should be good. Yeah. Let's get started with Prop 8. Okay. So what is Prop 8 besides <laughs> no hate Prop 8? Yeah, it's not, it's not about gay marriage. Oh. Um, so it was written by a group called SEIU-UHW, which is the healthcare faction of one of our state's biggest labor unions. And the gist of it is, if you vote yes for Prop 8, you're supporting a bill that would require dialysis clinics to issue refunds to patients or patients' payers, so the payers probably just an insurance company, for revenue above 115% of the costs of patient care and healthcare improvements. So is that 115% above what it costs, or is it 100% plus 15? It's the second one. So like they're they're allowed to make 15% profit, but not more than that. Okay, so they can charge 100% of what it actually costs plus 15%. Mm-hmm. Okay, but they can't charge more than that now. Right. Anything more than that that they make, they have to either put back into direct patient care or just give it back to the insurance company. Okay. So what is considered direct patient care? Right. It covers more than just like the actual dialysis treatment. So any wages and benefits for the people who are providing the care would fall under that. Also pharmaceuticals, so drugs and medical supplies. And then like rental costs for maintaining facilities and then lab testing. And what are healthcare improvements? Um, so that would be staff training and patient education and counseling. Oh, okay. So, cool. yeah, the text of the prop defines those terms pretty explicitly. Is there any other 
non-money related things that this bill covers. Yeah, they tacked on this thing that said clinics are prohibited from discriminating or refusing service based on a patient's payer. So they tend to make less money from people who have government insurance like Medi-Cal or Medicaid. So this bill would just say like you can't turn away people who are on those plans. Okay. Cool. So it's a little bit of a healthcare bill of rights thrown in. Yeah, for di- for dialysis patients. Yeah. Awesome. Who is in favor of this proposition? So it's mostly the group that wrote it. So this labor union that has uh, put in $6 million towards the campaign. And then a group called Californians for Kidney Dialysis Patient Protection. And so the main arguments in support would be, so right now, as you'll hear from the person we interviewed, a lot of clinics have problems with sanitation and it's just, it's not good. Like there's, there's bugs or like just unclean conditions and also usually clinics are understaffed Mm -hmm. which is a liability for them because patients could die or have like a heart attack while they're undergoing dialysis treatment and like the staff wouldn't get there in time because there's just not enough staff oh wow which is scary very scary because they need this treatment to live but then they go to this clinic and like they're risking their life every time oh my god it's horrible yeah so the bill is kind of framed as it would improve life for the workers because they won't be as like stretched as thin and it also will improve patient care and patient like access to good dialysis treatment okay who's against it if anyone the the corporations dialysis firms um the people would have to pay this money yeah the people that wouldn't be able to make as much money off these patients how much money do they normally charge like insurance and individuals for this treatment i think it was like they Typically, would charge somewhere like one fifty thousand or two hundred thousand, like per year. Oh. And then it actually only costs like sixty thousand for the treatment itself. Oh. It's something like ridiculous, like that. So almost like three times as much. Yeah. As much as three times as much. Wow. Which That's like, like crazy. Yeah, it's fair for them to make a profit because it is a business, in the end. But like, that's not. That's not. Yeah. That's not. They shouldn't needed. be making three hundred percent or whatever. Anyways. Okay. But yeah, so who did we interview? We talked to a man named Emmanuel Gonzalez, who is a dialysis worker in California and also pretty politically active in terms of like labor unions and yeah. All right. So here we go. (laughs) Could you describe briefly what dialysis is and what type of patient would require dialysis treatment? Yeah, so... um... So what dialysis is, is it's a, what we like to call uh, lately a life-saving treatment in which a patient's blood is removed from the body uh, through what we call, it's just blood tubing through a pump. It's taken, put through a dialyzer, what um, we can call a filter to make it just easier, easier terms. And then it's put back into their body. Um, and what that process is, what it does is it replenishes electrolytes, it removes toxins from the body. And it also removes excess fluid because when a patient has end-stage renal disease, they no longer, they lose the function of cleaning the blood and also urinating. So you can imagine you drink uh, water, you drink any kind of liquid, even ice, you eat ice, and that, that fluid is going to stay in you. It's not going to be removed. So when they come to dialysis, they come to us. Uh, we are able to uh, remove the blood from the body and remove toxins and um, excess fluid to ensure that and they're able to live another day. Do uh, patients have to do this every day? Uh, some patients, it all depends on the doctor's order. They usually do these treatments anywhere from three to four hours um, a day, and sometimes it's a minimum of three week, uh, three times a week. Uh, I've had patients okay. where they have to do four times a week, five times a week, and six times a week. So it all depends on the patient's uh, lab values, and their situation and the, what the doctor feels necessary for them. Okay, wow. Yeah. Like my dad, he goes three times a week, uh, four hours and 15 minutes a day. Oh, wow. That's yeah, like a so. huge portion of your week. It's like a Yeah, it's, it's job. like a part-time job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. it's uh, It can be a lot, uh, very stressful. It can be very uh, draining for the patient. And that's why... Um, 
as employees and workers, we serve our communities and we make sure that they get the best experience. Um, could you talk about kind of what your day-to-day role and responsibilities are as dialysis worker? Yeah, so as a dialysis worker, um, so we have different people in the unit. Um, they come in at different times. Some of them as early as 12 midnight, and then they leave about 1 to 2 p.m., and some folks come in 11 uh, a.m., and they'll leave about 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. the next morning. Uh, we work 12 to 13-hour shifts, sometimes more, depending on the staffing issue. And what we do is we bring our patients in, we assess them, we uh, check their vital signs and make sure that uh, there no nothing's abnormal. Uh, we want to make sure that the patient has not been hospitalized, and if they have, we're able to do a proper assessment, call the doctor, ensure that they're able to undergo a dialysis treatment. And then from there, for me, I, uh, I'm i going to examine the patient's vascular access. So that's actually an access in the arm. It could be in the leg. Uh, and what it does is it gives us access to the patient's, pretty much their vascular uh, space of the blood, so their, their bloodstream. And from there, I properly, uh, you know, disinfect the arm with alcohol. And we're going to insert two large needles. Usually they're 15 to 14 gauge. Uh, they're about the size of nails. And from there we oh. connect them to a machine. Yeah. So these are very big needles. It's very serious. Um, we connect them to the machine and uh, we set what we call the goal. And that goal is the amount of fluid we want to remove within that treatment. So it can be from the three to four hour period of time. And... We're going to monitor the patient's vital signs. We monitor their temperature to make sure that uh, they don't become, you know, they don't get any kind of infection because we're, we're accessing a part of the body that's very prone to infection. It's the blood space. Um, the other thing that uh, is important is to monitor our patients. That's like the number one thing other than putting the needles inside of uh, the patient's arm correctly is to ensure that we are properly monitoring them because when we start to pull out this, this fluid volume, uh, the blood pressure tends to drop. And what will happen is the patient can pass out, they can go into cardiac arrest, and um, they can have severe complications, which, which will result in hospitalization or, unfortunately, even become fatal and the patients die in the clinics. Um, and then from there, we ensure that the patient is well. Um, once the treatment is complete, we will return the patient's blood with normal saline, and we'll check the sitting and standing blood pressure. Because a lot of times with diabetics, they stand up and their blood pressure drops because they have poor circulation. So all the blood from the head rushes right down to the feet, and they can pass out just standing up. So oh, wow. we ensure that the patient, yeah, we ensure the patient is uh, uh, capable of, uh, you know, if they if they ambulate, they can ambulate on their own, or uh, make sure that they're uh, able to be discharged uh, fine. And then from there, we get their weight. They they come in, they give us their weight, and they hopefully. If we remove something, they've got to leave it a little lighter. So uh, from there, then we discharge them, say have a good day, and then hope and then uh, see them uh, on the next day or whenever their next treatment is. Um, how would you respond to opponents of the proposition who are arguing that it could reduce patient access to, to treatment? Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends. I've heard a lot of arguments on the other side talking about access to care. Um, which is untrue because in 1972, President Nixon actually signed the Medicare uh, Amendment, which would which granted everybody with end-stage renal disease access to Medicare. So dialysis providers and this proposition don't have any authority to reduce access to care with regards to uh, insurance or anything like that. That's been one of the arguments. Um, the other thing is that the proposition doesn't stop the dialysis corporations from charging what they already charge. And I might add that there's a huge markup with uh, these dialysis providers, especially for, for private insurance. They're charging anywhere from uh, 150000 and we've seen even upwards of uh, $300,000, and they usually mark up an average of 350% on what the actual cost of care is. So it doesn't, like... There, it seems that it, reduce, it won't reduce access to care because the proposition actually encourages these companies to open more clinics, to update uh, a lot of the systems that are uh, a little archaic, and also to invest in patient care. I mean, the more staff, the more resources you put into the company, you, you're still able to 
care for your patients, and for them, they're able to make a profit. I mean, we're talking 15%. It's unheard of in the medical industry. Hospitals only go, they only make a profit of about 3 to 5%. So we're actually giving them 15% um, with this proposed uh, proposition. So uh, when they say it's not going to be, if, if they, it's going to reduce access to care, that's actually going to be their doing. If they, if they say they're going to close clinics and they're going to, it's going to reduce access, that's going to be on them because they already make enough money. Last year they made $3.9 billion of profit. I think they can invest a little more in uh, direct patient care. All right. Right. So kind of incentivizing them to not skim so much off the top and put it back into the, the health care system. Exactly. That's correct. What is your biggest, like in your opinion, what is like the biggest issue for you um, providing dialysis care to patients? And would Prop 8 alleviate that uh, issue? Yeah. Well, I, man, I don't, to be honest, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I, um, I'll start with uh, staffing issues for one. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you a situation. You know, I remember I got into this business, uh, or I should say this industry, I was uh, 21 years old, and I decided I wanted to serve my community. And I had the opportunity to, you know, do that, but I was in a situation where I had one, two other uh, employees, two other coworkers with me. We had about 18 patients, and I went to check on one lady. She came in just fine, really, really nice lady. And when I went to check on her in the middle of her treatment, she was about maybe 15 minutes into her treatment, and she began to, uh, her eyes rolled to the back of her head, and she began to turn blue. So right away, you just, you remember what you're taught, right? You just uh, re-administer normal saline, call for help. But there were only two other people with us. Everybody had gone on their lunch break because it was that time. So this lady, she went into cardiac arrest. So we put her on the ground. We start CPR. Thankfully, uh, somebody forgot something on the treatment floor, so they were able to call 911. We had uh, three of us working on her, and fortunately, this person survived. But uh, that that could have gone wrong because we don't have yeah. enough staff. I mean, think about the the industry. There is no regulation in California regarding staffing issue or staffing regul. There's no staffing regulation, but the company says that there should always be four. Uh, for every four patients, there should be one uh, technician, and for every nurse, there should be 12 patients for every nurse. But we don't see that. And the problem is is that there have been scores of patients who have died in dialysis chairs because they haven't been monitored correctly. People, the employees are so busy on the other side of the clinic that the patient passes out and then they never wake up again. You know, like my dad has seen that. Um, he's seen, I mean, he lost count how many patients have died in chairs next to him, and he's called for help and the, the employees are too busy, and by the time they get to the patient, the patient's dead. Um, other concerns, too, are uh, roaches and rats in the clinic. Um, they don't seem to do a good pest control job. Um, oh. Yeah, there's a clinic I work at as well in San Bernardino where the clinic is actually upstairs, and it's not, um, it's not capable of really serving people with disabilities. So if there's a fire in the clinic, there's all, the only way up is an elevator or stairs. So if you have patients that can't walk, I guess the only way you, you leave them there to burn or you, you throw them off the ledge and hope that the, when they land on the wheelchair, they land on their wheels, right? Things like that. I mean, they should be investing in infrastructure. And what Proposition 8 will do is it will create an incentive for these companies to reinvest uh, a portion of their revenue into direct services. So that patients don't have to be in rat-infested clinics. They don't have to worry about, am I going to go home to see my family at the end of the day? And that they can be in facilities that are state-of-the-art and that meet their needs, not old buildings from, like, the 1960s that don't meet the needs of a, of a modern medical facility. So that's what Proposition 8 is going to do. It's not going to reduce access to care. It's actually going to make care better. It's going to improve uh, the overall experience for our patients. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Um, I'm not sure if you can see on this because it's not directly related to the clinic itself, but um, mm -hmm. do you know what, like, rebate money or the refund money would be used for once it's received by insurance companies? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, well, I'll say this is that 90% of our dialysis patients, and I and I know that a not, a, not a lot of patients are on private insurance, 
even though um, there's a good portion of that uh, revenue that does come from private insurance, but a majority of patients are actually on government uh, subsidized insurance, or I should say socialized medicine to be exact, and it's Medicare or Medicare. We do have a lot of patients in our clinic who are also undocumented, so they don't receive Medicare. Um, they'll receive Medi-Cal. Sometimes they're eligible for various uh, insurance plans. Uh, when it comes to the reimbursement, um, my understanding is that when the – now, they have, I believe, it's something like 200 and something days. I'd have to see the uh, initiative for that after the fact, after the fiscal year to refund the money. That money is going to go back into Medicare. And we all know that Medicare is a taxpayer-funded uh, program that gives people – uh, you know, insurance and various uh, health services so that um, they can, you know, live a healthy life uh, in retirement or even in some cases if they're disabled. Uh, that money is going to go back to Medicare, um, and it's going to go be used um, elsewhere, and it's going to be uh, uh, repurposed uh, to benefit other programs within the Medicare services. Uh, not to mention, I might add that um, just a few weeks ago, Medicare also um, – stated that they wanted, they proposed a $210 million increase for dialysis services at the federal level. So, um, you know, they're, they're definitely, in, they want to invest more in the, in the clinics. And with Proposition 8, we're going to ensure that, that, that those investments are actually used on patients and not to uh, uh, have fancy dinners and private jets and all that good stuff that executives like. So... Uh, my understanding is that when it comes to Medicare and also for private insurance, that money is going to go back to the provider. So in the case of Medicare, it'll be Medicare, and for if it's Blue Cross Blue Shield, it'll be Blue Cross and Blue Shield. All right, great. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. It's really very informative. Thank you. I I appreciate you guys uh, uh, calling, or I should say, having me on your guys' podcast. It's an honor. Yeah, I think he was a really good guest. He seemed very well informed and really understood what he was talking about. I definitely agree with him on the point that this bill is meant to put more money into the industry and not just into the pockets of people who are like in charge of it. Mm -hmm. And I agree that that should definitely take effect because I feel like we have privatized health insurance to the point that we don't realize that it's a it's an inelastic good. Like, everyone needs health insurance. These are goods that, uh, for people that just can't be supplemented with other things. Like, they need this treatment. And we shouldn't just take advantage of it because they need it and make them pay whatever cost for it to happen. It's like water. You can't... Water is needed by everyone. You can't then make it so exorbitant that the people who need it can't afford it. No. Yeah. I think it's pretty corrupt to profit off people who are like, need this life-saving treatment. Yeah. And the facilities sound disgusting. I know. Roaches? Yeah. Ew. Like spiders like crawling over people. Yeah. It's gross. Pretty like nightmarish. And they spend like upwards of like 12 or 15 hours a week like doing this. Yeah. They spend so much time devoting to this devoting their lives it's like a part-time job like i said in the interview yeah it is it really they like deserve to be comfortable while they're doing it yeah especially if they're paying for it they shouldn't be in filth and the staff shouldn't have to be dealing with like 10 patients at a time no it's supposed to be like what five patients he said i think so per staff yeah and i think he has a good perspective because he works in the industry but he also has a family member who's going through treatment Mm -hmm. so like some arguments against the proposition have been like like it will only benefit the dialysis workers themselves no it's definitely i think it's going to benefit the dialysis people who are getting treatment yeah it also benefits the insurance companies which i'm surprised the insurance companies haven't come out behind this yet right because they're the ones who are going to make the most like either they're going to get money back or Maybe they're like, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like a judge. Like, you you shouldn't be able to fire judges because you don't think their decisions are unpopular. <laughs> Throwback to Judge Persky. Yeah. 
Throwback to episode five. So but, the insurance companies are hesitant to speak out about it. Yeah, because they don't want to set the precedent of, like, it being okay to go after, like, medical industry and make them actually pay their fair share or, like, <laughs> not charge exorbitant costs because then they're going to be like, oh, what if, like, California gets that idea to do that to us? And it's like, well, we should. Right. Ugh. But, yeah, I am in favor of this bill. It's a stamp of approval from Jamie Livingston. Cool. Me too. All right. I think it's hard to find reasons against it. Yeah. It, I think the we're going to see a lot of money thrown against it, and there's going to be a lot of disinformation. Mm-hmm. And that's why we should talk about it now before the race really heats up. Yeah. Because this is going to be a contentious one, because it could cost, it is going to cost the dialysis providers millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. They're actually going to have to spend towards care or give back yeah so yeah that was proposition eight let's move on to proposition 11 Woo! yeah tell me about it okay there's three parts to proposition 11 there is a section about work breaks and being on call during those there's a section about additional training and there's a section about mental health services provided to emts and paramedics so the first section focuses on these work breaks. So as of right now, paramedics are expected to take their work break at the beginning of their shift or the end of their shift. So they don't actually get a proper work break during their 12-hour shift in the middle to eat lunch. Okay. They can be forced to take it before or after. Also, anytime there is downtime is considered their work break. Even if they're driving around waiting for a call, and they're not just actually taking time to like eat, that's considered their work break. So they're almost always, you know, doing something, but even if they're not, if they're not exactly directly on a call, it's considered break. Right. This bill would make it so they can take breaks, but they can remain on call during those breaks. So currently they don't have designated breaks and they're always on call. Is that true? Yes, as of now. This bill would make it so they're always on call, but they would have breaks and they would be paid during those breaks. Okay. So the breaks would be scheduled. They would know what time they're on break. They would know what time they're on break. The ambulance employer could not compel its workers to take the break at the first or the last hour of their shift, and the breaks would be paid. And if a break is interrupted, then it would not count towards their break. So they would get to take another one? They'd either get to take another one or they'd get additional compensation. Okay. So say like it interrupted the last five minutes of the break and they were basically done, they could then be like, oh, I want additional compensation for that break instead of having to take a break all over again. Okay. Yes. So that's the break part. And then what were the other two? So the other two parts was there'd be additional training for EMTs and paramedics. Uh, provided by the employers. So these trainings would focus on active shooter situations and multiple casualties. So, you know, as shootings are becoming more more common, which is awful and disgusting, and we need legislation to fix that, so is the likelihood of people being injured from those events. So this would be training to properly instruct EMTs on how to deal with those situations and how to move around. Just something, you know, disaster situations in general. The other one would be natural disasters. Because mm-hmm. as the wildfires are getting worse, people are getting more and more natural disasters are occurring. Climate change, guys. <laughs> Fun. So they'd have to figure out how to focus on that. Violence prevention. So if they're in a situation that they're in harm, they know how to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And then the last is mental health situations. So if someone's, you know, maybe having a mental breakdown or like, having a schizophrenic break or bipolar or something like that, they know how to handle the situation and not escalate it. So do they have some existing training for these situations, like, already? When we talked to Lee, who the guy we interviewed, he said that they did already have existing training, but he was unclear about who pays for that training. He said it was conducted by the county. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if the county pays for it, and now it transitions the cost over to the ambulance workers the not the ambulance workers but the ambulance providers Mm -hmm. also these individuals would be paid for these trainings 
Okay. And then the final section of this bill is that employers like ambulance providers would be required to provide 10 mental health services to EMT and paramedics a year. So I'm not, it's really, really vague. It doesn't say what those services are. If it's like 10 days of counseling they're allowed per year, which is not that That's much. That's like nothing, yeah. It's like 10 weeks of counseling. Eh. Like once a month, sort of. Yeah, it's like less than once a month. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, it's, it's very confusing. But also, if they already provide um, health care insurance, they would need to provide a plan that offers long-term mental health services. So that's the entirety of the bill. The reason this bill is being written is because of a lawsuit. Uh, Augustus versus ABA Security Services is a California Supreme Court lawsuit that occurred on December of 2016. The ruling came out in December of 2016. Okay. So... ABA security required its security guards to keep their pages on during breaks, which was ruled as a violation of the state's labor code, because that's requiring them to work during breaks. Yeah. So they would have to, like, if something happened, they would have to stop their break and go to it, which is against the labor code law, which says you can't compel a worker to work during their designated breaks. Although the ruling applied to security guards, it was noted that EMTs and paramedics are also required by employers to stay on call during breaks. If this bill does not pass, uh, ambulance providers would have to hire 25% more ambulance crews to accommodate for breaks. And that statistic I got from Ballotpedia, so. So that's saying if Prop 11 didn't pass. Didn't pass? If Prop 11 didn't pass, they would have to hire 25% more ambulance workers. Ambulance crews, I should say, not ambulance workers. It'd be crews, workers, same thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm curious how it works for, like, firefighters. Like, did they have breaks? So that's the thing, is firefighters and police officers, they also are constantly on call during their breaks. They don't really have breaks. Yeah. So they're just paid the entire time, and there's special divisions within the law that exclude them from these labor codes because they're emergency workers. I think the difference between police officers and firefighters is that they're a public service. EMTs are private. Okay. Again, we privatize healthcare. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Capitalism. But it's a privatized service. So this exemption is more for the employers than it is for the employees. The supporters for Prop 11 is this PAC mm-hmm. called California for Emergency Preparedness and Safety. And they've raised $3.65 million in funding. And there is only one donor. Interesting. <laughs> Which is the American Medical Re- Response, the country's largest medical transportation firm. So basically one ambulance employer is sponsoring this entire bill. So their argument is that this is already a long-standing tradition within the EMT and paramedic community, obviously because they require them to stay on call during breaks now, and that was just ruled illegal, so... I don't know if you call that a tradition. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's just your practice. Uh, we'll give additional breaks and compensation for missed breaks that was not already being provided. You could have provided that, but now you're making yourself have a law that makes you provide that? Okay. Again, weird. If this does not pass, EMTs will have to be unreachable during their breaks, even if an emergency is a block away. Yes. But if this did not pass, they would be more crews on schedule, like 25% more crews on schedule overall. So it'd probably be someone close by too. Uh-huh. Just me poking holes through their arguments. I mean, I think that is a valid point as someone who has had a call 911 to get an ambulance on for myself before because I have a lot of allergies guys <laughs> Jamie's a delicate human food and me aren't friends I do appreciate them being there and having the closest one available but you know so the opponents to this bill are California Teacher Association <laughs> okay and United Steelworkers so Okay, as I understand it, this proposition was written or basically promoted by a private ambulance company Mm -hmm. because they're afraid they would have to hire a lot more people as a result of this lawsuit, which said that the way they're doing breaks is not, like, ethical or lawful. Yes, but not only that, 
a point made by the United Steel's workers when I reached out for an interview with someone was that they also have millions of dollars in violations of labor codes against them. So they have millions of dollars of lawsuits for them violating these labor codes that they have been doing for a long time. And this lawsuit, Augustus versus ABA Security, sets a precedent that they're going to lose these lawsuits, that they're going to have to pay all this money. All right. So they're like, oh, shit. Like, oh, shit. how do we, like, nullify all of these lawsuits so we don't have to pay? Yes. And if this bill passed, then they could go to a lawyer and be like, hey, I want to retroactively you'd be like, see, this was like already a tradition. This needed to happen. Firefighters were doing this. Like it would really strengthen their case that like we need these EMTs on call all the time. A law just passed within California saying we need to do this. Can we not pay all these fines for violating it? Because it was just part of our service. Okay. So that's Hmm. the argument from the opponents. We spoke with Lee Alameda, who is the president of his local United Steel's workers chapter and is an EMT worker. So here's our interview with Lee. So you are the president of your local steelworkers chapter, correct? Steelworkers Union chapter. Correct. Just really quick, does steelworkers union like cover EMTs as well? Yes, actually they have a healthcare division um, and um, there's any, we, there's hospitals, there's nursing homes, there's EMTs, there's medics. Um, there's a variety of healthcare in that in that division. Okay, all right. So can you take me through the day and the life of an EMT worker? Uh, as far as EMT and medics, we work 12-hour shifts. Um, we come in, get in, log in, get our unit, and we're put in the system. We're at the company's, um, uh, what do you call it, mercy, so to speak. Um, we're, we're, we're run a 911 system, and we're on call every minute of the shift, pretty much. Um, you, there's specific things you can go out of service for, and that's things like uh, equipment or stuff that we need that the county allows us to go out of service for. But other than that, we're in service all of our shift, whether we eat, eating or going to the bathroom or whatever, we're in service, period. Okay. Would Prop 11 change that, or would it just make it so you would have to stay on call now? Prop 11 is not going to change how they're going to do things. What Prop 11 will do is basically get them out of, try to get them out of their lawsuits, and that's what it's about. Okay. Um, Because they've got numerous lawsuits that could cost them millions and millions of dollars, and um, or the large companies do. and if those lawsuits go through, it's going to cost them a lot of money. So large companies are trying to change the law to where they will not have to follow the meal periods because right now they're fo- not following them, and that's what they're violating. So that's where the lawsuits come in. So if they're trying to change it to where the law doesn't apply to us in EMS, therefore the lawsuits are null and void, but at the end of the day, if there, whatever costs there are out there, could you end up going to the taxpayers, not the company itself? Okay, so yeah, that breaks into my next question, which is um, why would they no longer be liable for if this bill passed um, to pay these fines? Like, because it changes the law that they've been breaking, so if that law no longer exists and they find a way or uh, get a judge to agree to make it retroactive, so to speak, it 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 nullifies their violations. It's not going to help us either way. What what, what it's going to do is keep us working the way we are, not getting meal periods, not getting breaks, and basically let the large companies get away scot-free for violating the laws like they have for the last several years. Okay. Um, if any changes were to be made to California's labor laws regarding uh, EMT and paramedics, what kind of changes would you want to see personally? The one thing would be is, you know, it would be nice to go back to where we could get a meal period because years back we used to get them. 
we got 30 minutes, and they would take us out of the system to for it. And um, now, granted, we, we would still be on the hook if we were closer to a 911. But we, for the most part, you were able to eat your meal without, you know, getting tagged with a call. So after years back, years back, I'd say three, four, five years ago, um, they stopped giving us meal periods and just are saying, well, if you have downtime, um, it constitutes a meal period. Well, it's hard to say that we have downtime because when we clear calls at a hospital, we're, we're always on call and we're driving to post. And post means we're driving from what to cover one area to another. So we're always driving to cover areas. Oh, and we're finishing the, the patient care reports from the previous call. So it's hard to say that we're going to have downtime. There's no guarantees whatsoever. Okay. So in a sense, you're always doing something. There's nothing that anybody can say that we have downtime. More often than not, you don't. Okay. Okay, so there is a two additional parts where they would allow for, um, they would require up to 10 uh, 10 mental health programs available to an EMT or paramedic or if there is, they uh, provide a health insurance through the program through their employer, then they would require that in health insurance to include mental health, long-term mental health programs and services. And then there's also um, additional training part of, part of Prop 11 where the uh, ambulance employer would, the ambulance providers would provide trains for like multi-casual, multi-casualties um, and environmental. Um, well, but see, that's that's a smoke screen. Okay. Because we get all of that now. I just meant to look like to the public that it's like doing all these extra things when it's already, it's already going. Well, yeah, I mean. I mean, uh, let's be honest. Let's call BSBS. I mean, there's a lot of training that the county requires already. There's um, NCI stuff that the county requires. In order to re recertify our licenses, we have to have training that the county requires. So it's not they're not doing us any favors. MCI incidents, uh, stress relief or whatever, we get all of that now. So let's call it what it is. They're trying to sugarcoat it to make it sound like they're doing a big, everybody a big favor. Okay. Um. I mean, it'd be, uh, I can see where they're coming from. They're not going to come out and say, well, we're going to do this because we don't want to be sued and we don't want the public to understand what's going on and this and that. So we're going to say we're going to do all of this stuff that we already do that the public doesn't really know. Okay. All right. I think that's all the questions we had for you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really appreciated. No, thank you. Yeah. No problem. Thank you so much. So I think Lee had some interesting points. However, when I tried to pressure him on the logistics of their claims, he was a little shaky. He didn't seem prepared to speak about kind of the... Um, like technical aspects of it no but i think his perspective was really valuable in understanding like what it's like for an emt right now and it sounds like he just doesn't ever have a break during his day and he never has time to relax and you need that and especially in a 12-hour shift you need some time to just decompress and eat and yeah. not think about everything like i need that during the day and if you're seeing people who are like you know, in life-threatening situations all day. Like, that's so emotionally taxing. Yeah. Yeah, overall. I am still confused. <laughs> I am a little confused, too. Like, now, I like, when I first read the bill, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm totally for this. This makes total sense. Like, EMTs are emergency workers. They should remain on call during breaks, and they should be paid for that. If they're going to be on call, they should be paid. But I also don't want this... I don't want AMR to get out of all these lawsuits for violating these workers' rights. Right. Like, if there was a way to guarantee that they would still have to pay pay for the lawsuit and this bill could pass, I would pass it. But also, when I asked him what he would do to change the labor laws so he could have, like, you know, what, what kind of changes he would want to see, 
he was iffy on that too. Yeah. I would think that ambulance workers would want some proposition that gives them designated breaks, um, and ideally they wouldn't be on call, right? Like, that would be ideal for them. Yeah. He, he sounds like he doesn't want to be on call during his breaks. He just wants to have his break and relax. I want to speak to more, you know, paramedics. Here they come. Yeah, <laughs> can we flag them down? We have questions for you! <laughs> Yeah, I, something I should have looked into beforehand is how much, who is suing AMR? Like, what were the circumstances behind those? Yeah, is United Steelworkers part of that action, lawsuit? Mm -hmm. Would you explain why they're against this? Because anything that's going to weaken their lawsuit, they don't want to go through. Right. Which, I'm inclined to protect, um you know, labor unions and the workers themselves over their employers. Yeah, I think one of the greatest crimes of the 20th century, 21st century is that we've completely dissolved our unions and weakened them, which is awful. Yeah, it's dangerous because these people are being exploited, basically. Like, you shouldn't work a 12-hour shift on your feet and not eat. Like Yeah, and not be given, a, like, a proper, like, hour. You actually deserve an hour for a 12-hour shift. Yeah. Most people eat three meals within two 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And he only gets one? That's ridiculous. Or not even. Like, not maybe not he has even. time to, like, eat a granola bar. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like he's sitting in an office playing solitaire all day. <laughs> yeah. He's running around lifting heavy things and having to think of his feet and, yeah. No. I... Maybe this bill isn't perfect, but it... Like, when I read it, it did give them a lot more rights. So, if his main argument is that it's going to weaken their lawsuit, I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing. Maybe he's concerned that after this, if this passes, people would be like, okay, so problem solved. And then they still wouldn't have the ideal situation in terms of, like, breaks. Yeah. I mean, if I was really was to be against this bill, I'd want some solid other alternative because this... This proposition isn't that bad. Like, I read it over. It really does give them a lot more rights. It's not, um, yeah, it's improving their quality of life. Yeah. This one's a little bit more complicated for me because I don't want to go against someone who's obviously a worker who has experience with this, but at the same time, reading the bill on its own, like, I'm in support of it. So Mm -hmm. I guess as time goes on, I'll have more of a definitive opinion. Mm Mm-hmm. But as of now, I want to see... I, I wish we had, they had more of a solid argument besides a lawsuit. He didn't seem like he had read the text of the bill. Yeah. I think he was just going off of what the official opinion of the United Steel's Workers Union is. I mean, I'm sure he, he knows a lot of EMTs and he's the president of the chapter for this labor union. So he has a pretty good idea of like the general consensus, which is why it was good to talk to him. But I wish he just had more sort of underlying knowledge yeah but yeah so yes overall (laughs) of the two propositions yes on prop 8 we undecided california support prop 8 and prop 11 eh, we want to support it but we still feel like there's time to tell Mm mm-hmm I mean, also another issue with Prop 11 is that when I asked him, like, oh, how would California's, like, one of their main arguments is California would, like, the taxpayers would then have to pay, pick up the bill. And I'm like, how would that work? That doesn't make sense. Because it's already, like, privatized, right? Yeah, like, how would California have to pick up the bill for, like, their mistakes? I don't, you, yeah, like, Prop 11 should not affect the average Californian, right? If you're not an EMT worker. Well, I mean, it affects the average Californian because if you are injured and need an ambulance and someone's taking a break and they can't be on call... But, and it, but didn't you say that they're always on call? Now they're always on call, but the lawsuit says they can't always be on call, so if this doesn't pass, they won't be on call during breaks. Here's the real issue, guys. Let's just make them public. <laughs> Let's just make EMTs like a public service so we don't get charged a thousand dollars to have an e- uh, ambulance ride and private t- and public eyes 
healthcare in general, and yeah, let's just do that. Make it a right. Okay. End of, end of case. So that was our episode. That was it. Are you more confused than you were before? Because me too. <laughs> that seems to be the common theme throughout this podcast. We try to figure it out, and then we end up just being very confused. Nothing is as simple as you think it is. Nothing is. I'm not confused about Prop 8, though. You did a good job. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was pretty straightforward, and we had a great interview guest for that one. I know. We love you, Emmanuel. Anyways, so what are we talking about next week, Hanako? We are, hopefully, we're going to interview a Palo Alto City Council member named Corey Waldock. Yep. He wants to talk about... Like, you know, states' rights versus federal rights versus, like, the Constitution, that's always an argument. The same can be applied to local government, where it's local rights versus states inputting their opinions on things and, like, the balance between, you know, doing what's effective for your community and doing what the state wants and how they collide. Yes, okay. and good first-hand experience about that. So it's kind of one of those uh, talking about democracy episodes. We'll give you a break from elections and propositions and all that fun stuff to talk about. Some cool yeah. democracy shiz. Yeah. yeah. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, he should be good. As always, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. No, we don't have a Snapchat. Twitter. We should have a Snapchat. We should have a Snapchat. All that fun stuff. Go check it out. Go subscribe. What's our handle? At Undecided CA. Go follow us. Go tweet at us. DM us. Be our friends. Well, if you DM us, we'll DM you back. Yeah. We just want to know you're out there. We just want to make sure it's not one person listening to our episode 20 times. Tell us you exist. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your opinions. Tell us your dreams and hopes. Tell us what you ate for breakfast this morning. Tell us all that fun stuff. And Patreon. Go give us money. Please. Support us so we can make more stuff for you. You guys get annoyed when you hear cars running by in the background? We do. <laughs> we hate listening to that shiz. You want to hear us interview politicians in person in Southern California? Join our Patreon. Send us there. Send us there. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye.